today, however, I'm going to give you none of that at all. <laughs> no Rumi, some Ibn Arabi, no Ibn Sabain. Uh, the last three times, if I recall, that I gave uh, lectures at the Ibn Arabi Society, I was doing historical work, and I think once I talked about El Jazuli, who was in the realm of the saints, his connection to Ibn Arabi, I talked about Abu Medina, and I talked about Ibn Sabain. But since September 11, 2001, I've been involved in many different kinds of things, and this is the first time I've actually given a normative uh, paper at a, a gathering such as this. Uh, what I'm going to try to give you is the outline of an ongoing project uh, that is essentially, um, let's call it a moral theology of priorities of right and obligation uh, related to the divine command as understood by Ibn Arabi. Where this comes from, uh, actually, first of all, I should say I have to dedicate my talk to our common friend and colleague, Stephen Hertenstein. Mm -hmm. Three years ago, uh, uh, a little earlier than this, back in October, uh, we were at uh, a crafts fair in War Eagle in the hills outside of Fayetteville, Arkansas. And we were talking about whether or not this is the time for Ibn Arabi, whether this is the era in which his teachings uh, perhaps will be more widely understood uh, than they were in his own times. And maybe the people who appreciate him and understand him will be wider than the group of disciples and their disciples and followers that we talk about so often in our gatherings. And um, I'm hoping to uh, perhaps give a somewhat more practical example of how this might work in present conditions. Um, I'll be giving you uh, uh, about half of a much longer piece uh, that was written for a meeting of world religious leaders that's going to be held in Sevilla, Spain uh, on the second and third weeks of December uh, this year, just about a month from now. Uh, this comes out of a partnership that uh, the program that I run at University of Arkansas has with the Elijah School for the Study of Wisdom and World Religions, which is based in Jerusalem, uh, with the Faculty of, um, of Religious Studies at McGill University in Montreal. And the people who are involved in this project, it's, uh, there's a sort of a core of five, uh, let's call them budding theologians or professors acting as three theologians who speak from their own tradition. There's Alon Goshen Gottstein, uh, who's the head of the Elijah School. Uh, um, there's myself. There's Stephen Sykes, uh, who's from the uh, University of Durham in England, who's presently the head of the Theological Commission for the Church of England. There's Ashok Vohra, who is a professor and a specialist in Hindu philosophy from the University of Delhi. Barry Levy, who's the dean of the Faculty of Religious Studies at McGill. And Richard Hayes, who is a practitioner and specialist in Buddhism. Uh, I also work in a group called the Scriptural Reasoning Group, which has received a grant uh, from the Center for Theological Inquiry in Princeton to create uh, new theological perspectives that bring uh, Christians, Jews, and Muslims together in common uh, conversation. And I've also been privileged enough to be part of the Building Bridges Seminar that has been organized by uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury. It's kind of interesting, before I became a Muslim, I was a, an Episcopalian, and I find that I have much more to do with the Anglican Communion today than I ever did when I was an Episcopalian. <laughs> <laughs> Again, Ibn Arby would appreciate it. Yes. <laughs> um, uh, before I start, though, I think I want to make it clear that, again, I'm, I'm fo following, following the ideas of Hans-Georg Gadamer, who says that all of us have our prejudices and that we can't escape our prejudices, but we have to own up to them. Uh, before I start, I'd like to let you know a little bit of some of mine. First of all, I'm a universalist in the sense that I believe in the universality of revelation. Secondly, you could probably call me a perennialist, in the sense that I believe that universalism, or the belief in the universality of revelation, leads to a belief in the absolute, uh, uh, in one absolute, of which religious traditions are different, but uh, overlapping, present different but overlapping perspectives. Uh, third, I could say I'm a creedalist, uh, in the sense that I still believe that boundaries between religions are necessary. At the very least, they have a social importance if they don't necessarily have a theological importance. Uh, in the Islamic side of things, I'm definitely part of what's called Ahlul Qur'an, or the people of the Qur'an, in the sense that I believe that there is a Qur'anic religious message that transcends the historically conditioned contours of belief and practice. In this sense, I guess you could probably call me an essentialist as well, in the sense that I believe there's a sort of essential Qur'anic message of Islam. 
I am resolutely anti-fundamentalist. Uh, I believe that a literal interpretation of any sacred scripture is, is logically uh, untenable, uh, and particularly untenable today in the sense that it's leading to, I think, some very, very dangerous perspectives. Uh, next, I'm a rationalist uh, in the sense that I believe that human reason is a gift from the absolute uh, that is given uniquely to humanity and has an essential part to play in religion. Uh, I follow the old tradition about Islam, that Islam equals deen, religion, plus akal, intellect, or reason. Uh, but you could also call me a spiritualist in the sense that I also believe there's a vertical dimension of the divine-human relationship that provides an inspiration that allows the human being to transcend the limitations of reason. And that reason alone is not a path to God, that you cannot get to God without grace. And so that intellect, in the sense that I think of the term, is a combination of reason and divine grace that operates in the human being. And if there's anything divine in us, I think that's perhaps where it can be found. And finally, as you can imagine from all the different what is I, what, what, what I am lists coming down here, uh, one group of Muslims when I spoke to said, what kind of a Muslim are you anyway? <laughs> and my answer was, and you'll like this, especially I think Mahmoud will like this, I'm a Jeffersonian Muslim. <laughs> right? I come from profoundly democratic and anti-aristocratic traditions, so as some people need to understand what's wrong with their aristocracy, or I have to well, what's wrong with democracy, I have to understand what's, what's wrong with, say, what's right with aristocracy. But I'm Jeffersonian in the sense of a letter that Thomas Jefferson wrote uh, at uh, around the turn of the 19th century, shortly before his death, uh, to the uh, legislature of the state of Virginia, where he said, and I'm quoting pretty closely here, I swear upon the altar of Almighty God to oppose any system of belief that seeks to oppress the mind of man. That's, that's sort of the bottom line. All right. Uh, what I'm going to do is give you just a quick uh, run over of the half of this paper that you're not going to hear because it's too long. And I'm going to really focus on the half that's most germane to uh, our, our, our studies today. Um, this paper, uh, is again, comes from a project that's called Religion, Society, and the Other. Hostility, Hospitality, and the Hope of Human Flourishing. And this is the problematic that all five of us are working on, and that we'll be discussing with world religious leaders, at least those who deign to come uh, in, uh, in December. Um, when I looked at the Islamic situation, uh, I came to the conclusion that the problem of fostering hospitality and the hope of human flourishing across religious traditions in Islam uh, really boils down to a sort of sense of theological hostility that one finds in the exoteric Islamic perspective and an epistemological sense of difference in the sense that there's a very strong bifurcation, especially in Islamic thought today, between um, uh, what is traditionally and authentically acceptable, which somehow has to be pure from outside influence, and what is not acceptable, which can lead to a source of impurity uh, as part of outside influence. And I started out talking about the issue of history and how history relates to theology. Typically, it's supposed by people, most theologians today in the so-called Abrahamic traditions, that the historian of religion provides a descriptive analysis of religion, whereas the theologian constructs or reconstructs religion as a system of thought. What I tried to point out is that historians do a lot of reconstruction also. That, as a matter of fact, there's some studies that, that point this out recently, but that uh, the historical analysis of religious tradition can challenge the theological and moral ideals of a tradition by juxtaposing these ideals against the realities of the tradition as, they are, as the realities are practiced and understood through time. Um, since every work of history necessarily examines the past from the perspective of the present, all historical projects, including those of religious history, are interpretive and thus reconstructive in nature. So what happens when you look at what history does with religion, history either reconfirms a tradition by memorializing it, or it helps redefine religious tradition by critically examining the relationship between theory and practice. And this, in and of itself, helps create new theological perspectives. I do believe in tradition. I think tradition is very important. But when I look at tradition, I don't look at tradition as something that's static or crystalline. 
I look at tradition as something that's always in a process of transformation. Every time we look back at a tradition, we're taking a snapshot of that tradition in the past according to how we understand ourselves in the present. So there are certain aspects of tradition that stay the same. There are certain contours of tradition that change. And I think especially now, if we're going to deal with the challenges that the present time offer us, we cannot idealize tradition to the extent of saying that it is primordial, unchangeable, and static. It may be primordial. There's an essential part that may be primordial, but it's never static. It's always in a process of transformation itself. Now, one of the reasons why this idea is not necessarily widely accepted outside of the academy is that this, let's call it a process model of tradition that I'm giving you, is often seen as a Trojan horse for two perspectives that are seen as dangerous uh, to religion. These are the genealogical critiques of religion and the historicist critiques of religion, um, uh, which both challenge uh, the concept of authentic tradition by saying that there is no uh, tradition with a capital T. And I go on to describe uh, how these particular critiques work. I give some examples of, of, of applications of these critiques to Islam. And I point out that they really haven't managed to threaten Islam all that much, despite the fears of some people to the contrary. Uh, I remember back when I was at Berkeley in the 1970s as an undergraduate, the Campus Crusade for Christ used to have a bumper sticker that said, God is dead, Nietzsche, and then Nietzsche is dead, God. <laughs> so the answer, Nietzsche is dead, God, I think still I'd say most people, certainly the Abrahamic traditions, believe the second part, not the first. But... I do say that these genealogical and historical critiques of religious tradition can do some good as long as people don't buy into the full epistemological perspectives. In other words, I sort of look at them as toolboxes, and that you can take people such as Nietzsche, you can take people such as Foucault, you can even take some historical um, scholars of religion, and you can, in a sense, highlight the points that they make that are important for those who are actively involved in religious development without buying into the whole thing. All right? we, we, I think, I can't remember who said it, but somebody did mention, I can't, can't remember if you did Peter or who, but somebody mentioned that Nietzsche does have an occasional use from time to time. I mean, depending on the context. I do, I do understand that. Right. Um, and, and again, I think it's important for us to remember that, that these critiques of religion also point out, that, point out the fact that uh, that any religious tradition is more than one tradition, that there are multiple ways of thinking about the absolute, there are multiple ways of expressing one's relationship to the absolute, and that no one way is necessarily right, or no other ways are necessarily wrong. And I think this is a, a, an attitude that fits quite well with the Sheikh al-Akbar's position, in the sense that he, more than anyone else, knew the value of sort of the range of perspectives from what you might call literalism to, uh, uh, to say, uh, let's call it symbolic mysticism. Uh, then I talk uh, also in this piece about uh, a, uh, an article that appeared early this summer uh, from a person in Saudi Arabia by the name of Yusuf al-Ayiri. Uh, Yusuf al-Ayiri was one of those who was killed by the Saudi security forces uh, in, uh, if I remember correctly, July or June of uh, 2003 of this year for being involved with Al-Qaeda. And shortly before that time, Ayeri uh, published this article in which he said that democracy is a grave ideological threat to Islam because democracy seductively, this term here, seductively leads Muslims to believe they can shape their own destinies and that by using their collective reasoning, they can alter the laws that govern them. Uh, this reliance on individual and collective reasoning, he says, will lead believers to accept moral relativism and cultural difference it will lead people to ignore the laws promulgated by God for humankind, would lead them to undermine the Sharia as the codification of God's will, and, quote, make Muslims love this world, forget the next world, and abandon jihad. Uh, what, one of the things that you can note in this particular piece is the gendered tone of his discourse. Essentially what he's saying is that Eve, who is a feminized Western democracy, seduces an Islamic Adam, into accepting the forbidden fruits of personal autonomy and free will. According to this very pessimistic moral calculus, 
Theological and moral relativism are the inevitable consequences of individualism, and individualism is the ideological mask worn by egoism, which is the quintessential sin in Islam. Now, what I go on to show is that this piece, even though Ayeri himself was an extremist, the view that he is trying to express is not all that different from views that you get from other more moderate Muslim writers in the exoteric vein. And, for, for example, one sees the same perspective in the so-called Tawhidic or oneness perspective that has uh, been uh, promulgated by groups such as the International uh, Institute of Islamic Thought and uh, uh, Muslim Brotherhood and uh, groups such as the Jamaati Islam in Pakistan. Uh, just to give one example, there is a, an Iraqi-born legal specialist here in the United States called Taha Jabir al-Awani, uh, who is one of the founding members of the International Institute of Islamic Thought, who defines what he calls an Islamic paradigm of knowledge as being concerned with identifying and erecting a Tawhid-based system of knowledge, a Tawhidi episteme. Now, by the way, it's important, uh, the reason I cite this poor person is that he was trained in fiqh, or Islamic law, at al-Azhar. Uh, he had been teaching for a number of years at Mohammed ibn Saud University in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. Mohammed ibn Saud University is the main theoretical bastion of Wahhabi ideology in Saudi Arabia. Uh, ironically, that's where Rupiah's early Sufi women manuscript came from. Mm -hmm. uh, and he is also, uh, uh, since 1981, uh, a member of the Council of the Muslim World League in Mecca, and is also the self-appointed head of the Sharia Council of North America. Now, the danger of all of this is that this totalizing Tawhidic perspective as it's expressed exoterically in contemporary Islam, uh, makes it much harder for Muslims to justify difference of any kind. When the divine oneness is collapsed into the oneness of all things, even on the most mundane level, not only does it make it harder for Muslims to, to accept difference among religious perspectives, it's also harder for Muslims to accept difference among themselves. And so this creates a sort of an epistemological crisis within Islam. Whereat, where, whereby every form of difference, especially difference in thought and difference in conceptions and difference in worldview, is seen as a threat to this Tawhidic oneness. And of course, the greatest threat, as you can imagine, are the threat of the Sufis. <laughs> and uh, I quote here something that just recently came up. There's a very popular magazine among the Muslim community in America. It's called The American Muslim. It's published by the Muslim American Society in Falls Church, Virginia. In the September 2003 issue, in their regular fatwa column by somebody by the name of Sheikh Mohammed al-Hanouti, a woman wrote in who was approached by, quote, a good Muslim man for marriage. Unfortunately, the man happened to be a Sufi, and the woman does, quote, not want to end up with someone who does something wrong against Islam. <laughs> Hanouti's reply illustrates the marginalization of Sufism and the historical Islamic tradition uh, that this Tawhidic uh, perspective leads to. He says, and I quote, I do not know what sort of a Sufi he is, but in general I advise you to marry a person who has good knowledge of Islam and one who is not merely following culture and tradition. Right? This, is, this is diametrically opposed to everything we're talking about here. Yeah. In general, I would caution you against marrying a Sufi, for a great many Sufis do not have a good knowledge of Islam and are tilted toward lives of inconvenience. Despite <laughs> <laughs> how inconvenient we all are. <laughs> now, I contrast this with the statement of a non-Sufi, a very well-known scholar of, in the Islamic past by the name of Ibn Qutayba, who lived in the ninth century, uh, in, who said in Uyun al-Akbar, one of his greatest books, The Sources of Knowledge, he said, and I quote, knowledge is the stray camel of the believer. It benefits one regardless from where one takes it. It will not lessen the truth if you hear it from pagans, nor can those who harbor hatred divide, derive any advice from it. Shabby clothes do no injustice to a beautiful woman, nor do shells to pearls, nor does gold's origin from dust. Whoever neglects to take the good from the place where it is found misses an opportunity, and opportunities are as fleeting as the clouds. Ibn Abbas, the cousin of the Prophet Muhammad, said, Take wisdom from whomever you hear it, for the fool may utter a wise saying, and a target may be hit by a beginner. So what I'm trying to do is to go from this epistemological Tawhidic crisis back, in a sense, to Ibn Qutayba. Okay, when we're talking about a, a, a vision of 
let's not call it pluralism, let's call it plural value, all right, in the sense of ideas, and, and the, the value of the human experience, and how that can be expressed across tradition, this is something that is not only modern, this is something that one finds very much within the historical Islamic tradition, if you look in the right place. Now, of course, Ibn Qutayba lived in a period of time, this is why you have to be a historian sometimes, where the Abbasid Empire was probably the greatest state in the world. Uh, Baghdad was probably, uh, if maybe other than the capital of China, was the most cosmopolitan city in the world. And the Muslims were on top. The Muslims in those days were like the Americans today. They were you know, perfectly happy with their hegemony. And they had nothing to fear from other people. Now, of course, we're living in a very different world in which Muslims feel constantly at threat. And yet, this inwardness, this sort of, this inqibat or qabt, this drawing inward, this, this drawing inward that Sufis speak about, is creating a very sort of a hard, fossilized almost, or, or a, a dried up nut uh, that not only is sort of sticking in the throat of human history, but it's creating a number of serious dangers that we've all, of course, seen over the last couple of years. Um, another danger as well is that this Tawhidic, this Tawhidic perspective, this Salafi perspective as well, which see themselves as reconstituting traditional Islam, are themselves very untraditional. Uh, what they all try to do is they try to engine, socially engineer society to create a perfectly pure Islamic society. Rather than working on the individual outward, they work on society inward, and they forget, of course, a very, very major point in the Quran, which is that no matter how long you wait, and no matter who runs the society, the world will never be perfect. And there's an assumption of, of, of the ability of sort of the human engineering of perfection, which is not only wrong and anti-Islamic from a Quranic point of view, it's also profoundly modern. And so in many ways, these Wahhabis who try to be anti-modern are the most modern of all, in that they create a sort of, a, 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 rather than getting involved in a debate or an argument over principles, uh, what you have is you have a number of different voices shouting over each other in which the voice that has the greatest political or military power behind it has the loudest voice. And from a philosophical point of view, there really is no sense of warranted assertability. When you have an argument, you have to have a warrant for your argument. You have to be able to back it up and assert it. Well, there's no concept of warrant and assertability because people feel they can say whatever they want as long as they have strength. You know, and, and again, that's not an argument. This is not a way to deal with the problems um, of the present. So now let's move on to the paper that I will read for you. The first thing we have to do is to find interpretive space. The dialectical process by which a tradition develops through time requires a hermeneutical space in which critical theology and the critical history of religion can operate. The Wahhabi and Salafi regimes of power that dominate contemporary Sunni discourse limit such space by rejecting foreign ideas or epistemologies and by branding all models of reform that do not fit their political agendas as unwarranted innovation. This is the same whether these unwarranted, so-called unwarranted methods seek a neo-traditionalist revival of the juridical, philosophical, or Sufi approaches of the past, or whether they employ the tools of critical theory to come up with new solutions. The Salafi response to the problem of making Islam relevant in an increasingly pluralistic, globalized, and empirical world is to proclaim that Islam is simple, and to reduce religion to a calculus of ritual obligations, external symbols of group identity, such as so-called Islamic women's dress, and social mores that are designed to promote political activism on the one hand and exclusivism on the other. The consequences in Sunni Islam has been a pervasive anti-intellectualism that when combined with the integrism that is so much part of political Islam has created or has made a model of Sunni Islam that's more of a sectarian cult than a world religion. Before modern times, few Muslim scholars would dare to assert that Islam is simple. Islam, as it was actually lived and interpreted, was as simple or complex as it needed to be, and the level at which it was approached depended on what circumstances required. The institution of jurisprudence, or fiqh, traditionally the most important intellectual discipline in Islam, was premised on the need to apply the sharia in a multiplicity of different contexts, and developed a sophisticated logic, derived large, largely from Aristotle, for interpreting the law in different situations. 
The complexity of Islam in practice was acknowledged further through the establishment of Islamic jurisprudence in different schools of law that essentially were methodological schools, which differed in their, differed in their approaches to textual sources, yet recognized each other's right to exist. The specifically juridical hermeneutical method was the method known as ta'wil, and this was the subject of tre treatises within each school and could operate on different conceptual levels. Now, uh, Tawil came up, I believe, in Rapia's talk. It may have come up one other time. Uh, I think it's important to point out that the origin of Tawil has nothing to do with Shiism or Sufism, uh, despite the fact that some writers have linked them to both. Tawil was literally the juridical method of textual hermeneutics. In other words, it was assumed that there are times that at times, as I'll say in a second, uh, it will be impossible for the jurist to read a scriptural text literally or to make a literal application of the text. And so what ta'wil was, was a term that meant literally going back to the origin, ta'awila, to go back to the beginning, and to sort of dissect this text to figure out what the logic of the text means for present circumstances. What happened is that in time, this ta'wil term dropped out of the exoteric tradition, but was retained within Shiism and Sufism. And so that today it becomes erroneously um, uh, associated with Sufism, where you get people saying, for example, when you're approaching the Qur'an, tafsir is what all normal people do, ta'wil is what Sufis do. But in reality, they're exactly the same. An example of the hermeneutical space that I've been talking about uh, can be found in Abu Hamid al-Ghazali's work, Faisal al-Tafriqa bain al-Islam wa zandaqa This is the decisive criterion for distinguishing Islam from heresy. This work was written by al-Ghazali to counteract the tendency of partisan Muslim scholars in his own time to condemn their opponents as heretics or unbelievers. Ghazali belonged to the Ashari school of theology, which taught that a person could not call himself a Muslim unless he or she could rationally justify why he or she believed the way they did. According to Ghazali, all phenomena, including the statements of God in the Quran and the traditions of the Prophet Muhammad in the Sunnah, can be understood and thus interpreted on five different levels. They can be interpreted ontologically existentially, that's number one. They can be interpreted experientially. They can be interpreted conceptually. They can be interpreted intellectually or they can be interpreted metaphorically. Now this is quite a wide range of interpretation here. Ghazali says that as long as people do not say that God or the Prophet lie on, all, on any of these levels, and they allow in that they can operate within, 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 by interpreting on one of these levels, it is improper to brand as an unbeliever such a person. So in other words, this is the range of interpretive space which I would say is a range that takes in just about everything we've been talking about this weekend, including the thought of Ibn Arabi. And again, as I said, this is premised on the fact, as, as Al-Ghazali says, that the, the theologian will at times be compelled to acknowledge the logical impossibility of the literal meaning of a sacred text. This is a quote from Al-Ghazali himself. The check and checks and balances to this particular method, according to Al-Ghazali, is simply that one must be careful enough in interpreting a text on, on one or more of these five levels, so that one could establish a proper philosophical warrant or burhan for each assertion by adhering as closely as possible to the original text and by not allowing doctrinal or political prejudices to cloud one's judgment. Now, I would say that the warrant to interpret sacred texts on more than one level of meaning is necessary if Muslim theologians today are, are going to constructively engage with theologians of other religions in a common quest for religious understanding. An advantage of a critical historical method in Islamic hermeneutics is that it enables the modern theologian to re-examine the vast sweep of Islamic intellectual history, to reassess its successes and failures, and to resurrect interpretive voices that have been silenced in the past. Today, the silenced voices, especially in Sunni Islam, include most of the intellectual tradition of medieval Islam. These are the philosophers, systematic theologians such as Al-Ghazali. There are actually people out there who call Al-Ghazali an unbeliever. Most jurisprudential scholars working within the Sunni schools of law, and of course the Sufis. Some of the most important Sufi writings on religious difference, of course, as we all know, come from the school of the Sheikh al-Akbar Muhyiddin ibn Arabi, 
whose followers were often criticized, as we heard yesterday, for not adhering closely enough to the creedal boundaries established by some Muslim jurists. So what I did is I took an example of one of these criticized passages, and I'm going to try to show you that this is really not heretical, as people have said. If you go into the book El Insan al-Kamil by uh, Abdul Karim al-Jili, who was a very close follower of the thought of Ibn Arabi, Jili says this about religions, and I quote, Ten sects are the sources for all the religious differences, which are too numerous to count. And all of the differences revolve around these ten. They are polytheists, naturalists, philosophers, dualists, magians, materialists, barhamites, there's a question about what that means, Jews, Christians, and Muslims. For every one of these sects, for every one of these sects, God has created people whose destiny is heaven, and God has created people whose destiny is the fire. Have you not seen how the polytheists of past ages, who lived in regions not reached by the envoy of their time, remember that term we heard yesterday? Okay. Are divided into those who do good, whom God rewards, and those who do evil, whom God recompenses with fire. Each of these sects worships God as God desires to be worshipped, for he created them for himself, not for themselves. Thus they exist just as they were fashioned. God may be he, may be, he be glorified and exalted, manifest his names and attributes to these sects by means of his essence, and all of the sects worship God in their own way. Now, at first glance, this passage seems to deny the importance of religious difference and appears to promote a sort of medieval version of the transcendent unity of religion's thesis. However, on a more careful reading, one finds that Jilly has made a very legitimate, if somewhat unconventional, interpretation of the following two Quranic verses. Number one, this is from the Quran, For each one of you we have made a law, shira, and a way of life, minhaj. If God had wished, he would have made you into a single community. Instead, he has done this so that he may try you with what he has given you. So strive against each other in good works, for to God is the return for all of you, and he will inform you about that wherein you differ. Or, if your Lord had willed it, everyone on earth would have believed. Would you then force people to become believers? Okay. Although Julie's exegesis of these verses were unconventional, when compared to those of exoteric scholars, it was fully valid according to the rules established by Al-Ghazali. First, Jili did not even have to engage in the hermeneutical sleight of hand ascribed to Sufis by their opponents, but took the word of God at its literal meaning. By accepting the literal meaning of these verses, he was able to interpret them in Al-Ghazali's terms, both conceptually and intellectually, without having to resort to metaphor. Then he took a third Quranic verse, God does whatever he wants, and applied this theological truism to the fact of religious diversity. From here, the conclusion that Julie draws in the text of Ellen Sandal Camille, that religious diversity is God's will, and that all human beings practice religion as God intended them to, follow logically as valid interpretation of the sacred text. Now, for Julie, religions are not all of equal value. Islam, for him, is still quintessentially the religion of God. However, other religions should be respected and their followers should not be forced into Islam because all religions, including those that are wrong, exist by God's will. In the modern age, the chief religious problem for Islamic theology is not the pro proliferation of local sects and local religions, but the competition of rival world religions, each of which has a history longer than that of Islam, and each of which has developed sophisticated means of defense and interpretation. If God had truly intended to save the world through the message of Christ alone, then why would he have allowed the theological challenge of Islam? If Islam resolved all the contradictions of Christian theology, then why is Christianity still the largest religion? Part of the answer to these questions, Julius would assert, lies in the recognition that each religious tradition contains a portion of the universal truth to which people respond in their own way. Theological hostility can never be transformed into theological hospitality until this fact is fully recognized. In a recent unpublished paper, Martin Lings, commenting on Mark 12:30, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all of thy heart, with all of thy soul, with all of thy mind, and with all of thy strength, had said, and noted that Muslim and Christian religious authorities are all too ready to risk with all of, their, with all of thy mind 
for the sake of with all of thy soul and with all of thy strength. <laughs> I think it's very well put. Too much soul and strength, too little all of the body. Now, in the Quran, the sub—excuse me, the Ramadan's getting to my voice here from time to time. Uh, in the Quran, the subject of religious difference involves two separate types of divine command, which entail two different kinds of human obligations. Each of these commands involves a different way of approaching the interreligious other. The first command conceives of the other in a universal sense, as a fellow descendant of Adam, the first human being. In this perspective, human beings share natural duties and responsibilities that result from the covenant contracted between God and humanity before the creation of Adam. The second type of divine command applies more specifically and narrowly to Muslim believers. This constitutes the level of individual and collective obligations and includes the Quranic verses of difference and discrimination, which separate Muslims from believers in other traditions. It is on this level, the second level, that the problematical Quranic verses are to be found, which discuss the relations between the historical Muslim ummah and the religions of the time, the theological relationship between Islam and other historical religions, and the rules of social interaction, including the rules of war. Ibn Arabi calls the first of these divine commands the creative command of Amrit Taqwini. This command is creative because it regards all of creation, including humanity, as a product of divine mercy. The Quranic verse that conveys this idea of the command are, of course, my mercy encompasses everything, and, quote, God's only command when he desires a thing is to say to it, be, and it is. Ibn Arabi calls this the creative command because the act of creation is both the most powerful and the most merciful act that God performs. The creative command is thus prior to all other types of divine command because it expresses most co completely the theological and ontological oneness that is the Quran's basic message. And here I would say that if you want a true Quranic Tawhidic perspective, this is where it is, not in the totalizing Tawhidism uh, that is promoted by groups such as the Muslim Brotherhood and the inter uh, <coughs> excuse me, and Islamic integrism. Under the auspices of this command, the most important duty of the human being is to recognize that insofar as we are all human and created, we have one God, one origin, one ancestor, one race, and that we share with all other human beings the same nature, the same dignity, and the same ultimate religion. This religion is Islam in the universal Quranic sense of recognizing and submitting to the consequences of one's dependence on God. This understanding also expresses what, and here I bring in somebody modern, what moral philosopher John Rawls might have called the Islamic original position. Because this is the original position because it's built on the fundamental relationship between self and other that is the basis of all natural duties, whether between the individual and God or between oneself and other human beings. This original position is, 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 is epitomized in the Quran by a verse that expresses humanity's ascent to their ontological dependence on the Creator. Of course, that's the famous one. When thy Lord drew forth their descendants from the children of Adam, he made them testify concerning themselves, saying, Am I not your Lord? They replied, Yes, we do so testify. The fact that this covenant was contracted before humans were on earth implies that human beings have a pre-eternal side to their nature and thus have the ability to rise imaginatively above their earthly condition and to view the world of creation as if from a distance or a height. The higher one goes, the more the world appears as a whole, and differences that appear significant on the ground begin to disappear with the change in perspective. From such a vantage point, all of the world, including all people and all of their different beliefs, are part of the same reflection of God whose face will abide forever, because he is the first and the last and the outward and the inward. In this view of the world, in which self and other are seen as part of the same whole, we find an important aspect of the creative command, which gives rise to the natural duties that result from this original position. And I would say that these duties can be seen in this verse from the Quran, O humankind, keep your duty to your Lord, who created you from a single soul, and created its mate from it, and from whom issued forth many men and women. So revere Atapu, the God by whom you demand rights from one another, and revere the rights of kinship. The duty to revere God by fulfilling the promise of the pre-eternal covenant implies reverence for the rights of kinship, el-arham, literally the wombs, 
So revere the rights of the wombs. In the context of the creative command, this duty would apply to genealogical kinship, but it would also include the greater kinship of the human species, since all of humankind, as the children of Eve, were born from the same womb. To return to the terminology now, to return from Ibn Arabi to the terminology used by Rawls, the initial contractual situation of humanity's covenant with God is the starting point from which all concepts of right devolve, including the rights that people demand from each other. The fact that such rights are mutual and reciprocal is also part of the original position as a consequence of the shared being or ontology of humanity. This ontology includes a transcendent aspect which constitutes the spiritual potential of each human being. The Quran says that God breathed his spirit into Adam, and God created the heavens and the earth with truth and right, bilhaq, and fashioned Adam in the best of forms. Thus, human beings, who are composed both of divine spirit and matter, have a natural duty to respect the rights of both self and another, because both self and the other share the same combination of material being and spirit. This duty pertains irrespectively of whether the other is one's biological kin, or belongs to another race or another religion. To objectify the other means to forget that all human beings are made up of the same combination of spirit and clay. This is the mistake that led Satan in the form of Iblis to disrespect Adam by saying, I am better than he, you created me from fire, whereas you created him from clay. All right, this is the satanic issue, I think. Not, again, not the satanic issue that's being brought up by the integrists. According to Rawls, a conception of right is a set of principles, general in form and universal in application, that is to be publicly recognized as a final court of appeal for organizing the conflicting claims of moral persons. In Islam, this conception of right is a corollary of the original position that I just spoke of. As the Quran reminds us, not only was Adam created with rights, but the entire cosmological universe, the heavens and the earth, was similarly created with haq, an Arabic term that means right, truth, or justice. This term expresses the most general and universal application of the Quranic conception of right. The duty of mutual respect is similarly general and universal, and the right of human dignity cannot be claimed exclusively by Muslims. Thus, the tendency of some exoteric Muslims to deny moral personhood to the non-Muslim or the dissenting other is a serious breach of God's creative command. Another basic right that derives from the original position is the right to life. The Quran says, do not take human life, which God has made sacred, other than as a right. This he has enjoined upon you, so that you might think rationally. Interesting phrase. <laughs> Another, still, is the right of free choice, without which the standards by which the human beings are judged by God would be meaningless. Had God willed, they would not have attributed partners to him. We have not made you their keeper, nor are you responsible for them. The truth is from your Lord, so whoever wishes to believe, and whosoever wishes, whoever wishes shall believe, and whosoever wishes shall disbelieve. It would make a mockery of the God-given rights of dignity, life, and free choice for Muslims to restrict the political and social rights of confessional minorities, or to assign collective guilt to a group of people because of their religion, their ethnicity, or their system of government. All three of these rights, the right to life, the right to freedom, and the right to dignity, recall another natural duty that arises from the Quranic original position. This is the natural duty of mercy, or rahmah, which is prior in the Quran to all duties except the acknowledgement of humanity's dependence on God. So in terms of the Quranic prioritization of duties, number one is to recognize God for who he is and our dependence upon him. Number two, then, is to recognize that, as Ibn Arabi says, my mercy, my mercy encompasses everything. And also that God has also written upon his spirit mercy. This is the second most important uh, duty. It is often forgotten by contemporary Muslims, and especially by those who wish to introduce the Islamic Sharia into modern legal codes, that the duty of mercy applies to each and every obligation that God enjoins. What this means in practice is that when the performance of an obligation calls for severity, it is the duty of Muslims to temper that severity with mercy in every way possible. Second command, the command of obligation. The, the divine command that is most clearly understood by most Muslims today is not the creative command, but the second command, 
which uh, Ibn Arabi calls the command of obligation, al-amr al-taklifi. This command forms the basis of the sharia and is divided by the juridical tradition of Islam into injunctions that cover acts of worship, called ibadat, and injunctions covering interpersonal behavior, called mu'amalat. These include business transactions, criminal justice, and the laws of nations. The Arabic term taklif is a legal and moral concept that refers to the responsibility of individuals to carry out their obligations. Thus, the command of obligation imposes specific obligations on Muslims, either individually or collectively. It's a matter of debate whether such obligations should be obeyed simply because they come from God or because they are intrinsically good. For example, Muslim liberals following Muhammad Abdu, who was Mufti of Egypt from 1899 until his death in 1905, asserts that all divine statements, including divine commands, are subject to empirical verifiability and serve a necessary function that can be proven rationally. Others, such as the people who belong to the Islamic Liberation Party, Hizb al-Tahrir islami this is one of the integrist parties we see today, consider it sacrilegious to put God's command to any kind of a test. The classical juridical tradition of Islam dealt with questions of moral choice on a pragmatic and case-by-case basis. If you're looking for people in the historical Islamic tradition who attempted to assess the Islamic concept of obligation within the context of more universal conceptions of right and justice, you have to look to the philosophers and the Sufis. The marginalization of philosophical and Sufi methods in contemporary Islam and the resulting lack of debate on the wider philosophical issues surrounding the concept of obligation have become, I would say, major contributing factors to the rise of extremism in the Islamic world. The natural duty that governs moral obligations of Muslims under the command of obligation is the duty of justice. An alternative reading of the verse, God created the heavens and the earth with truth and right, bilhah, is God created the heavens and the earth with justice. Justice is a secondary meaning of the Arabic term haq and is, an, and is enjoined on human beings as a natural duty in a number of Quranic verses. For example, for example, verily God commands justice and kindness. The Arabic term for justice used in this verse, adl, corresponds closely to the Aristotelian notion of justice, which carries the sense of fairness or equity. So treating people with justice means to treat them equitably or treat them fairly. For Rawls, interestingly enough, to bring in again this modern thinker, all obligations arise from fairness, because the concept of fairness holds that a person is under an obligation to do his part, as specified by rules of the institution, whenever he has voluntarily accepted the benefits of the scheme. In Islam, voluntarily accepting the scheme is entailed by the Quranic original position as a consequence of the pre-eternal covenant between Adam and his descendants and God. Justice is thus a natural duty in Islam because human beings are born into justice from before their creation. The concept is, in a sense, hardwired into the physical and social world that humans occupy. Interestingly enough, all three concepts that are included in the notion of justice in Islam appear as divine names. God is characterized as the truth, al-haq. He's characterized as justice, al-adl. And as the fair or equitable, al-muqsit. This is particularly significant in the perspective of Ibn Arabi and his school, because for Ibn Arabi, the essential qualities of existence are imparted as manifestations or tajaliyat of the divine names. So again, insofar as we're created by God, and these are fundamental aspects of God's divine names, it is our duty as created beings to reflect them as we reflect all the divine names except our Rahman. The problem with applying justice to specific obligations in Islam today is that justice is most commonly under, understood as a moral duty, whereas the command of obligation is understood as a legal requirement. Because the exact relationship between duties and requirements, or duties and obligations, has not been defined in modern Islamic discourse, there is a tendency to fall into a confusion of priorities in the attempt to apply one or the other. Ibn Arabi was one of the few Muslim thinkers to address the problem of duty versus obligation systematically and to prioritize their requirements in light of the two types of divine command. The natural duty of mercy is exercised through what Ibn Arabi called the mercy of obligation, rahmat al-wujub. Unlike the ontological mercy of the gratuitous gift, rahmat al-imtinan, which extends over creation by virtue of the act of creation itself, the mercy of obligation refers to the mercy that is required in individual human actions according to God's statement, 
Your Lord has prescribed mercy for himself. Ibn Arabi relates the concept of mercy to the divine names Ar-Rahman and Ar-Rahim, with the mercy of the gratuitous gift corresponding to Ar-Rahman, and the mercy of obligation referring to Ar-Rahim. However, since all human obligations ultimately flow from the act of creation, any act of mercy bestowed by one human being on another is a gift for both the receiver and the giver alike. For the receiver, the gift of mercy compensates for the severity of justice. However, for the giver, even the duty to act mercifully is a gift from God, because God exercises mercy as a gratuitous, gratuitous act under the name of Ar-Rahman. To summarize, the natural duty of mercy is part of the Islamic original position by virtue of the creative command, which corresponds to the divine, divine name Ar-Rahman. Similarly, the exercise of mercy by human actors is made obligatory through the command of obligation by virtue of the divine name Ar-Rahim. Just as human mercy, or Rahmah, is implicit in the idea of mercy as a universal principle, Rahim, so the obligation to act mercifully on all possible occasions is a necessary consequence of the idea of mercy as a natural duty. However, most people are not aware of the logical priority of natural duties that arise from the creative command. Mired as they are in a world of difference and subjectivity, they interpret the command obligation in an exclusive sense and overlook the priority of both the creative command and the natural duties that arise from it. Ibn Arabi says this, this is uh, from Futuhat Book 4, The divine effusion is vast because God is vast. There is no shortcoming on his part, but you have nothing of him except what your essence accepts. Hence your own essence keeps the vast away from you and places you in the midst of constraint. The measure in which his governance occurs within you is your Lord. It is he that you serve and he alone that you recognize. This is the mark within which he will transmute himself to you on the day of resurrection by unveiling himself as he is. In this world, this mark is unseen by most people. Every human being knows it from himself, but he does not know that it is what he knows. <laughs> the Muslim who views the world from a narrow exoteric perspective can only perceive God through his or her personal experience. How God is to be conceived and what his commands entail are questions whose answers are constrained by the limits of one's own sense of self. The interpretations that the believer gives to the commands of God may be justifiable in a limited sense, but they are likely to lead to injustice if they are applied universally and uncritically. This is because normal human understanding reflects one's own personal worldview or egoistic worldview more than it reflects the understanding of God. In a commentary on the famous tradition, He who knows himself knows his Lord, Ibn Arabi explains, You are the one who becomes manifest to yourself, but this gives you nothing of God you do not know other than yourself. Even for the exoteric jurist who considered scriptural obligations to be prior to moral duties, each obligation still had to be assessed as to whether the divine command that produced it was general or specific, and if specific, what were the historical contexts of its revelation. An example of this problem of priorities can be found in Surah Tawbah, the Surah of Repentance in the Quran, in which some of the most apparently hostile verses concerning Muslims and non-Muslims appear. How is a Muslim to respond when the Quran commands, quote, fight against such of those who have been given the scripture and believe not in Allah or the last day and forbid not that which Allah has forbidden by his messenger and follow not the religion of truth until they pay the tribute, jizya, regularly, being brought low. <coughs> now it's certainly helpful to know that this discourse was revealed at a time when the polytheists and Jews in Arabia had broken their treaties with the Muslims and banded together against the Prophet in what eventually proved to be the final assault on Medina. However, as late as the mid-20th century, the Muslim Brotherhood activist Sayyid Qutb, who was fully aware of the historical background of this verse, interpreted it as a general command to compel non-Muslims to pay the jizya tax. Even more, he defined the jizya not as an exemption from military service, as Muslim apologists have done, but as a protection tax and token of public humiliation that temporarily exempted Jews and Christians from persecution by the Islamic State. Christian theologians studying the question of usury refer to a double standard in the book of Deuteronomy which objectifies the non-Jewish other by imposing discriminatory rules and practices on him. 
In the same vein, Surah Talibah can be seen as displaying an Islamic version of the double standard, in which the jizya tax levied on Jews and Christians replaces the tarbit that Jews took from Gentiles. This is the, the usury that they took. Jewish and Christian fundamentalists, fundamentalists might reply that this double standard is only a problem from the standpoint of secular notions of equality and citizenship, and that the idea of sameness before the law is a humanistic ideal that does not correspond to scriptural notions of justice. For such individuals, the laws of God always trump the laws of men. However, the critical theologian cannot dismiss this objection out of hand, but must take it seriously. It's not enough to simply ignore a problematical text from sacred, sacred scripture, wishing that it would go away. For the most part, this has been the strategy of Muslim apologists, who for years kept repeating the mantra, Islam means peace, until they themselves believed it, only to be rudely awakened by the events of September 11, 2001. So, final section. Building a bridge to hospitality and human flourishing. The first step toward a new theology of hospitality is for Muslims to remember that ultimately everything happens because God wills it to happen. Jilly was right. This includes human diversity, which the Quran mentions as having been created for the purpose of reflection and learning. For example, among God's signs are the creation of the heavens and the earth and the differences of your languages and colors. Here and indeed are portents for those with knowledge. Or, O humankind, we have created you male and female and have made you nations and tribes so that you may come to know one another. Verily, the noblest of you in the sight of God is the most God-conscious of you. Including in this diversity are differences in human ideas, worldviews and religions, all of which are allowed to exist because of God's creative command. However, and this is important for Muslims to remember, the acceptance of plural perspectives on the absolute does not mean that all religions are ultimately, are ultimately the same, or even that some religions might not be more effective ways to knowledge than others. By the same token, prioritizing the natural duty of mercy by acknowledging the dignity of Buddhists and Christians or accepting the divine origins of Judaism and Hinduism does not mean that Muslims cannot oppose the actions of the Israeli government in Palestine or that they should accept the destruction of the Babri Mosque. One or more of these actions may still be seen as evil because they contradict universal principles of social justice that are embodied in the Quran as well as in other scriptures. The point is that evil actions should be opposed in and of themselves and that they should not be seen as inescapable consequences of alternative religious perspectives. No religion that God allows to exist is bad per se, and no one has the right to exclude a believer in another religion from the brotherhood of the Islamic original position. Individual Christians and Hindus can do bad things, but so can Muslims. Saying that the Jews are enemies of Islam, or that American foreign policy is driven by crusader intentions, as uh, bin Laden did, is a moral and theological error of profound proportions. This error is caused on the moral level by ignorance of the relationship between the creative command and the command of obligation, and on the theological level by ignoring the full meaning of the human being as vicegerent or khalifa of God on earth. Acceptance of religious difference does not mean abandoning one's belief in theological superiority of one's perspective, nor does it mean going against God's will. In fact, the situation is quite the opposite. The creative command, without which no religious difference can exist, explicitly acknowledges the theological permissibility of religious pluralism in the following Quranic passage. And we go back now to the discussion of Jili. For each one of you we have made a law and a way of life. If God had willed, he would have made you into a single community. In the context of this verse, law, or shira, is a synonym for religion because it refers to the duties and obligations that provide a framework for the moral life. In pre-modern Islam, the subject of the law before Islam constituted what we today would call the history of religions. Furthermore, the verse goes on to say, Strive against each other in good works, for to God is the return for all of you, and he will inform you about that wherein you differ. Even a literal interpretation of the statement would suggest that the only interreligious competition that counts in the sight of God is competition in good works, such that, such that Muslims would compete with Jews, Christians, and others in the alleviation of human suffering. This is very different from the belief expressed by contemporary Palestinian extremists that strapping on a bomb belt and blowing up a bus of Israeli school children will earn the martyr reward in heaven because the children are potential Israeli soldiers. All acts, whether they are performed by Muslims or others, must be judged by weighing the requirements of the command of obligation against the natural duties of the creative command. 
Every sane individual is a morally responsible or mukedlef person who carries out her obligations in the context of the religion or moral standard, shira, that she accepts by virtue of either choice or birth. The Quranic verse, he it is who sent his messenger with guidance and the religion of truth, so that it may prevail over all religion, even if those who assign partners to God disapprove, is usually interpreted by Muslims as a general obligation to proselytize and as an assurance of the ultimate victory of Islam. However, without interpreting the scriptural expression of the command of obligation in the wider context of the moral priority of the creative command, how is one to resolve its apparent disagreement with the previously quoted Quran 548, which seems to defer the resolution of religious difference until the day of resurrection? Which verse is theologically more fundamental? How is one to understand the fact that Islam has not prevailed over all other religions after 14 centuries? If all one perceives is the command of obligation, is it logically permissible to assert, as the Wahhabis and Salafis do, that Islam has not prevailed because Muslims have not been Islamic enough? This preoccupation with obligation, a lack of a moral philosophy that takes account of the concept of natural duty, has prevented Muslims from viewing the divine will in a wider perspective. This air of short-sightedness, coupled with an obsession with victory, has plunged the world into its present religious crisis and threatens in the end to deprive Islam of both its spirituality and its morality. Ibn Arabi reminds us, despite the objections of those who have sought to silence his voice, that all human beings assign partners to God in one way or another, and that on this view believers in all religions are equally far from the religion of truth that will prevail at the end of time. The will of God is not one-dimensional, nor are history or human nature. Limiting the interpretation of God's word to a single dimension was theological untenable, theologically untenable for medieval Islamic scholars, and it is even more untenable today when human knowledge has better tools for analyzing and reflecting on the meaning of revelation. Five centuries ago, the Sufi and jurist Ahmed Zarouk of Fez, who died in 1493, wrote, he who practices Sufism without the law is a heretic. He who practices the law without Sufism is a reprobate. But he who combines the law and Sufism has attained to the truth. What Zarouk meant by this was that the practice of scriptural hermeneutics demands a multi-dimensional perspective in which individual obligations are viewed in the context of the creativity of God's will and in which the outer word of the law is interpreted in light of its inner spirit. This understanding of multidimensionality is an important aspect of the human being's cosmically assigned role as vicegerent of God on earth, a role that has been stressed often enough by Islamic integrists, but primarily in terms of dominion rather than in knowledge. In the passages of Surat al-Baqarah, where this vicegerency is discussed, what makes the human being rise above the bloodshed and mischief that the angels fear he will create is God's gift to Adam of all of the names, al-asma'a kulaha, and the words, kelimats, in Quranic semiotics, the names symbolize the essence of things, whereas the words symbolize the actualization of the essences. As such, the names correspond to God's creative command, which brings things into being, and the words correspond to God's command of obligation, through which the divine, world, the divine will is made manifest. Whether one accepts Ibn Arabi's framework for interpret, interpreting the divine will or not, it is clear from this verse that what makes Adam special is that he can uniquely bridge the gap between the angelic and terrestrial worlds, and that the keys to his bridge building are to be found in the transcendent intelligence and understanding the names and the words that God imparts to him. As a unique combination of spirit and matter and as vicegerent of God, the human being is thus by his very nature a pontifex, a builder of bridges between conceptual worlds. Beneath the differences that obtain between religious doctrines, sacred laws, and worldviews, all human beings share the same transcendental nature. All have access to the words that allow them to communicate with each other across religious divides. Because the human being is a bridge builder, it is illogical for us to assume that religious misunderstanding is normal or that religious differences cannot bridge. If believers in different religions cannot come to an understanding, it means that one or both of them are lacking in spiritual insight or one or both are in fundamental error. Among the rights bestowed on us by God, the right not to understand is nowhere to be found. <laughs> the Quran warns Muslims about this. Be not of those who ascribe partners to God, mushrikun, who split up their religion and become schismatics, each sect exulting in its doctrines. 
Ibn Arabi was one of those who showed how Muslims themselves can ascribe partners to God by calling not on God himself but on their personal Lord through the narrow vision of their own egos. This mistake, which ultimately is the cause of all of the theological hostility and evil that the human being can create in the name of religion, is due to the Pontifex Khalifa losing sight of the point of his own existence. With this error, the human being mistakes the contingent for the absolute, the false for the real, the secondary for the fundamental, the outer for the inner, and the particular for the universal. This mistake is the essence of the theological sin of shirk, a term usually defined as assigning partners to God, but which literally means sharing. It consists, in other words, of letting contingent ideas, concepts, and prejudices share in God's will and sovereignty, and as such is the greatest impediment to theological hospitality and the hope of human flourishing. As the Quran affirms, God does not forgive your shirk, but he forgives all else as he wills.